please, we need to lay hands on that baby and pray that it... Oh, I've got like 10 years of messages written on that. Oh, ah. So anyway, uh, my here's my notes, girls. So that's why you don't have a handout, and I don't know what you're going to hear today. So... But we're, we're really focusing in on the grace of Jesus, so I would like to give you an opportunity to extend the grace of Jesus to me as I teach today. So anyway, let me pray for us and we'll jump right in. Father, thank you for this group of women. Thank you for the blessing that it's been in my life. Thank you that you have met with us every single week, Lord. Every week you show up and you speak exactly words that we need to hear, Lord. Um, you remind us that you're good that you are sovereign, that you are at work in our lives, Lord, that you see us. And Lord, I'm trusting that today will be no different. When two or more are gathered in your name, you're among us. And so we thank you in advance for what you're going to say and what you're going to teach us about you today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, some of you, this is your first week today, and we are nearing the end of a five-week series, and it's just a series on uh, the person of Jesus, who Jesus is, his heart, his character, how surprising he was. He never, ever, um, he just never followed the status quo. He was always turning us on our head. He was always flipping the rules around. And so we've taken a closer look at that. We looked at the way he satisfies our thirst when we looked at the woman at the well, week one. Week two, we looked at how Jesus satisfies our hunger. When we looked at how he fed the 5,000, that was week Two. Week three was last week, and we looked at how he calmed the storms. We looked specifically at his power. And this week, we're going to look at his grace. We're going to look at the way Jesus loves us when we have zero to give to him. There is no reason. When we don't deserve it, when we are even unaware of it at times, when we don't know what to do when you're backed into a corner, like we're going to see this sweet little couple that we're going to look at today. We get to see Jesus come in and love us in ways that are not only sufficient, but go far beyond what we could ever ask, dream, or imagine. And so it's a wonderful picture. And we're looking in John chapter 2. Now, because you don't have a handout, I would love it if you would follow along in your Bible. Or if you have a smartphone and you have a Bible app, open up to John chapter 2. We're just going to be verses 1 through 12. We're looking at the wedding at Cana. And this is the very first public thing Jesus does. This is his first miracle, his first healing, his first anything. So this is the first time he decides to go public in his ministry. Um, and so I want to look at it with you today. So pull that up and let's start in John chapter 2, verse 1. And I am, I literally hand wrote these notes. And so I, if I start squinting and I don't know, it's just because I can't read my own writing, but work with me today. All right. Starting in verse one, what I want to do today is I want to walk through these 12 verses and we're going to just talk about it as we go. We're going to pick some things out, but the overarching subject matter today will be the grace of Christ, just his grace in all of our lives. And we'll see that played out in every character. Says the next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana near Galilee. Now we know that in scripture, the village of Cana, but today Cana is nowhere to be found. And so Cana, like Dwight has said before, is like cut and shoot Texas. It's just this remote little village that's kind of a no name village. It's just not really on the map, literally. 
but figuratively for sure. It's just a, a no name. And that's significant for us today because we're going to see Jesus move in ways um, that are surprising. And one of the ways is, is that we don't have to have any sort of talent. We don't have to have any sort of status. We don't have to have anything to receive the grace and love that's offered to us through Christ Jesus. And so the fact that his very first miracle, his very first step in a ministry is in Cut and Shoot, Texas, is so indicative of the heart of Christ. It's so typical about of just how atypical he is. Because normally if you are coming to as the Messiah, don't you think you want to start in Jerusalem, the hub of it all, in the temple, and you want to walk in and say, look, I'm here, I'm here. And he is so discreet that he goes to Cana to start his ministry. It's just a beautiful picture of who he is. So it's just this no-name, this no-name little town called Cana. And another thing that I love about this is that Jesus is invited to this wedding. Aren't you the type that when you're at a party and you learn something, this happens to me all the time because I've been in vocational ministry for a lot of years. Every time I introduce myself and I'm at a party or a social gathering and I say, you know, what do you do? What do your husband do? We're both in ministry. Everyone tends to straighten up just a little bit. <laughs> and internally, I know they're going, wah, wah, wah. They're like, okay, here comes the wet blanket. And that was not the case at all with Jesus. And I hope that's not the case with me. I, surely I can't imagine. Normally it's like, put a filter, Laura, put a filter. Remember that you're in ministry, okay? Um, but I love that, is that Jesus is at this wedding celebration. It says in verse 2, it says, Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Now, what's significant about this is that it says Jesus' mother was there. Prior to this, you see her referred to as Mary. But it's Jesus' mother. And some scholars, and of course, you know, we're, we're asking God to help us dig into Scripture. And so there's not been a light to shine down. But it's, it is interesting, as I've researched this, several different scholars have said it's... it's creating a bit of a distance between Christ and his mother. Not his love for her, but when it says the mother of Jesus, what's happening is as he starts his ministry, he begins to separate and he's not as much her little boy anymore as he is the Messiah. He's always been the Messiah. He's fully human and he's fully God. But it says the mother of Jesus was there. And so it's important, and I thought about this in, in my own life. There are times when my children are five and seven, and so I am a mommy manager. I manage their lives. I manage it. I manage their schedules. I manage their eating habits. I manage their sleep schedules, everything. I'm a manager. But the day is coming, and some of you can attest to this, that I move from the role of manager to counselor, right? Right? The greatest tragedy is when mothers don't know when that should happen, right? And some of you have mothers or mother-in-laws who are still managers, and they need a wake-up that, no, you're a counselor. And I think that's what we're seeing here. When we see Jesus, the, I mean, the mother of Jesus, we're moving, roles are shifting from Mary, the mother, Jesus' mama, to the mother of Jesus, like the birth mother of Jesus, but she will become a follower of Jesus just like the disciples. And so there are times in my life, right now I'm a manager, I'm hands-on, but I know the day's coming when I move to the role of counselor, and I pray that my managerial skills will be sufficient to help that, 
that transition happen. But that's what's going on here. In verse 3, let's continue to walk down, and, and you'll see it. this just gets juicier and juicier, literally and figuratively. Verse 3, it says, okay, so they're at this wedding in Cana. Now, before I go into the next verse, let me just tell you something. Weddings in Cana, or weddings anywhere in this day and age, were week-long celebrations. Now, some of you probably had crazy, extravagant, glorious weddings that felt that long. Some of us didn't, and we had little weddings, but they were great. But a week-long celebration, can you imagine how exhausting that would be? I mean, that, that would be exhausting. But they were a huge deal because couples and families loved on the bride and the bridegroom so much. And it was a way to celebrate them and to celebrate what God was about to do in their life. And wine would always be present at a wedding. Because in Jewish culture, wine it, it symbolized life and abundance. So anytime there was a celebration, wine would be present. Now, I don't know what your stance is on alcohol, and we don't even, we're not even going to get into that. Scripture says don't be drunk. That's what Scripture says. Scripture doesn't say don't drink wine. It says don't be drunk. And so you have to pray through that with God. What does God want you, how does He want you to handle alcohol? Does He want you to drink it? Does He not? You know, what? that's your freedom in Christ, but you have to work that out with Christ. So that's not what this message is about. But back then, there was always wine. It was a cultural norm at a wedding. And so in verse 3, where we pick up, and it says, the wine supply ran out. We must not skip over that. So that is not like you and your girlfriends are sitting around talking and the wine supply ran out and you go, oh, whoops, okay, somebody run up to Kroger. Okay? That's not what, for the wine supply to have ran out is a massive faux pas. It's a massive disgrace on the family. So the reason you need to understand that is because you need to understand what is at stake for this sweet young couple and their parents that are paying for this celebration. It's almost like it, one scholar that I read said Jewish hospitality laws say that you must have abundance. And it is a huge disgrace. And also remind yourself that they're in cut and shoot Texas. So it's, like, it's not like that would be something that would just kind of be swept under the rug. It's a huge embarrassment. So I don't know the last time you were humiliated. It's not a fun feeling. The last time that you did something that embarrassed you, it probably really wasn't a big deal. But in your life, to be embarrassed, it feels like a huge deal, doesn't it? Well, put this on steroids. It's a big, big deal. You need to understand that because we need to understand that this couple is about to be humiliated and disgraced, okay? And Jesus cares about that. Jesus cares about that. So it says in verse 3, the wine supply ran out during the festivities. Ooh! is the response. So Jesus' mother, again, Jesus' mother, told him, they have no more wine. They have no more wine. Now, what I love about Mary, Jesus' mother, is that she knows exactly who needs to understand that information. She already knows who her son is. And she looks at him and says, the wine supply has run out. So word is getting out. Now, notice what Jesus says to her in response. He says in verse 4, Dear woman, other translations that you may be reading will say woman, and yet another, 
show of, of, of distance creating, not like we're not going to be connected anymore, but we need to understand our roles now. And so when he says woman, in some translations, it almost will appear on the page as harsh, like woman. But he's saying it, in a, it's an affectionate term. He's saying, dear woman. So he never loses respect and honor for his mom. But he does always speak the truth to her. And he says, that's not our problem. Other translations will say, what does that have to do with me? Why? Because he says, my time has not yet come. Now, this is the beauty of the sovereignty of God, is that I don't know that the Lord had, okay, on May 5th at 2 o'clock, his ministry is going to start in Cana, or what that means. That's not what Jesus is trying to say. When he says, my time has not yet come, really what he's referring to is the hour of the cross. But what he's communicating is, is I'm, not, I'm not ready to jump on out there yet. Because Mary's wanting him to solve a problem. And so he's saying, I, I'm, not, I'm not ready to do that. But look at what Mary then says next. This is, I just love this woman. She says in verse 5, but, now remind you, Jesus would not have done anything outside of the Lord's will. Jesus would not have done anything that he was not called to do. So Mary's not changing his mind. Mary's not persuading or manipulating him. She's not slipped back into her managerial role. She simply knows who he is. She knows who he is. So verse 5, it says, But his mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. She knows who he is. The servants don't know who he is. His disciples hardly know who he is. They're fresh. They're fresh. They just left their fishing boats behind. So they're wide-eyed. And so she looks at the servants and says, Do whatever he tells you to do. I was listening to a message by a famous pastor. He said something that struck me. He said, Wives, if you would love your husbands like you love your sons, you would do away with so many marital issues. Yeah, I know. That was my response too. I was like, what? And the person interviewing this pastor said, "What? expound on that a little bit more. What struck me is he said, how many of you have sons in the room? You have sons. Okay. Bear with me if you're not a mother or you just have daughters. Even if you have daughters, you'll relate to this. But he said, mothers, you love your sons so radically, unconditionally. You believe the very, very best in them. When they fall down, you know they're going to get back up. You see what they're capable of when they do not or cannot. And let me tell you what, I have a seven-year-old, and I connect to that. This kid of mine, like Kim was just saying, she was working on our website, and she said, I wanted to say Laura has two perfect children, because I know you would say that. And I thought, that does sound a little bad, but that's how I feel. That is how I feel. It's like, I, and y'all, my son is not perfect. He's got all sorts of little things he's going to struggle with. But in my eyes, that child is angelic. Now, here's the thing. He came out of my body. He came out of my womb. Even if you've adopted your child, when they come from your heart like that, it's like that's a love that God puts in a mother that he doesn't necessarily put in a wife. 
right? So, so I think it's a bit, now mind you, this was, this was a male pastor that was saying this, so I had to take that into account, but I, I was screaming at the television going, let me just tell you what, it ain't the same, it ain't the same. It's not meant to be the same. It's not meant to be the same. But there's, a, there's an innate nurturing um, belief that we have about these children. It's like, I know who you are even when you don't. You, you think you're scared and you can't face first grade, first grade. Let me tell you who you are. You're Ben Seifert. You're Ben Seifert. You get in there, boy. You can do this. <laughs> That's how I feel. That's how I feel. I, I literally want to walk in at the first day of every school year and go, you're welcome to the teacher. So it's a little, we're bordering on obsession. I grant, grant you that. But it's this irrational love. And I'm telling you what, I know Mary sat there and when she looked at those servants, she said, do whatever he tells you. Because she knows, she knows who he is. Now, let me just wrap it up on the husband's side. I have pondered that a lot. And I thought, you know what? There's a lot of truth to that. There is a lot of truth to that. And so I have made, I'm trying to make better strides in believing in him instead of looking at him going, fix this for us. Fix this for our family. You know, we, they, our husbands, if you're married, are the leader of your home. That's the way the Lord set it up. And so what they need is to know that they've got a wife that's not looking at them going, what have you done for me lately, or what are you going to do next? But rather that they have a soft place to fall, that they have a wife that goes, this is hard, this is difficult, but I know you, and I know who you are, and I know you're going to, you're going to seek the Lord and you're going to figure this out. Now, some of the best advice I've ever received as a, as a woman and a wife is I am praying God lead him, and if he's wrong, hit him upside the head. <laughs> and my role will be to be an encourager, whether we take on the role of, i got to hit him upside the head, because if I don't, we're going to fall off a cliff together, right? Work on that, ladies. Okay, that's another message for another day. But I, want you, I don't want it to be missed on Mary's heart and her understanding and her belief in who Jesus is. And I pray for me and for you that we feel the same way. I mean, you talk about a credible witness, Mary, that these servants, they don't know him. To my understanding, they don't know him. But yet, because Mary says, do whatever he tells you, they're not questioning it. We will see. They do not question him. And I have had women and men in my life whose personal relationship with Christ has been made the gospel so credible to me that what they tell me about Jesus, I'm going to believe it until I've experienced it and learned it my own self. Right? Pray that you're that credible witness. Pray that you're like Mary so that when you look to your friends and say, you keep hanging on, you keep trusting him. He has not left you. He is for you. He is with you. That when you say that, others will believe it because of the life that you've led. Not a perfect life, but a life that's intimately connected to Christ. Mary knows who she's talking about. Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, it says, So standing nearby were six stone water jars. They were used for Jewish ceremonial cleansing or washing, and each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Literally, these 20 to 30 gallon jars were carved out of solid rock. They are heavy and they are big. Six of these filled to the brim would be tw over 2,500 cups of wine or cups of water. Okay, 
So Jewish custom in that day is that when you ever walked into someone's house or a party or before you ate, ceremonial washing or cleansing meant you would cup your hands and you would wash them and then you were ready to eat. You had purified yourself to eat. That's what these jars are for. So Jesus standing there, this is another thing I love about the Lord. He's standing there, he looks over, he sees the jars and he uses what's right there. He uses what's right there. I, on the other hand, in my life, when I'm in a bit of a pickle or up against a wall, I start looking at what's not enough. We talked about that week two, didn't we? I look at what's not enough and I wait and go, well, God's going to have to provide from out here or I don't know what I'm going to do because I don't have what it takes internally and I don't have what it takes around me. And Jesus is saying, listen, I can use things that you wouldn't normally think I could use to solve that problem. You know, they didn't normally serve wine out of ceremonial cleansing jars. But Jesus is saying, it's right here. I can take anything and make it what I need it to be. So Jesus looks at these and he says to the servants, now let me remind you too quickly, is that he's using the servants in this scenario. He's not using the master of ceremonies, who we'll look at later. He's not using Mary. He's not using the disciples. And I wondered as I read this what the disciples are thinking. When they're watching him instruct the servants, I'm wondering if they, like I would have been, is like, put me in the game. I know something great's about to happen, and I want to be a part of it. And so as I read this, I, it encouraged me, and I want to encourage you. If you're a follower of Christ, and you feel like you're not in the game, or you're on the sidelines, there is always a time and a season in our lives when our job is to sit and learn and watch. That was their job. The disciples' time was not ready either. They were not, they were not ready to, to launch out into ministry yet. They needed to watch Jesus do some miracles. They needed to watch Him love people. They needed to watch Him go against all social norms so that they would understand this is who He is. He's not at all what we thought He was going to be like. And so many seasons in my life I have been set aside, not set on a shelf, but, but set aside so that I would have a season in my life where I could just soak up from someone, just get into the Word myself without responsibilities, without other ministry times. So some of you may be in that season and it will be tempting for you to either be jealous of those that are in the game or for you to think maybe that you're not good enough or you've been left or he's not watching you. And all of that is a lie. All of that is a lie. And so if you find yourself in a season where God's not particularly using you in something that you think you want to be doing or thank him for that time. Because what he's doing in you is to prepare you for what is next. And if you don't have that season, like the disciples, where you sit back at the weddings and you watch what Jesus is doing, you will not be ready to, to, to move forward. And a lot of times I have found that those seasons usually come with pain. It's usually because I'm in a hard spot and he needs to pull me back so that he can heal me, can remind me that he loves me, can build into me things that I desperately need. So if you find yourself, if you're in that season, take heart. God's not left you. God's as active in your life as he is in someone else's life that is out there throwing touchdowns or whatever in the game. Okay? So take heart in that. Now, I will say quickly, too, before we move on. Some of you 
God is saying, it's time to get into the game. It's time to get into the game. And you're like, but it's real comfortable over here. It's real comfortable. And what is the game going to look like? And maybe it's lacrosse and I'd rather play football, you know, whatever. It's not necessarily what I wanted to do. Let me just tell you, if you sense God nudging you towards something to get into the game, get into the game. Don't miss out. I, I thought about that so much with this Bible study. I was telling, I think, these ladies here. I don't know, Sylvia, was it a year and a half ago, I guess, when we started? I don't know, a year? Whatever. Two years? Okay. When we first met, Sylvia and I met, we did not know each other. We both had a similar connection with Dwight Edwards, who started this ministry. So we met at Ruggles Bakery over there in Rice Village, and we're talking, and Dwight had just said, Laura, I want you to start teaching the women's side, and Sylvia Harris will help you. Great. So we start talking, and I'm like, Sylvia, I don't know anyone at River Oaks. I live in Friendswood. And Sylvia's like, well, I know a few. I don't know who's going to come. And we're like, Lord, if you'll bring three, one, two, three, then we'll, we'll get off to a good start here. Both of us were like, we don't really know what this is, what's happening. We were nervous. We were scared. But we sensed God saying, get into the game. Get into the game. And so we stepped out. We stepped out and did it. And now look at what God is doing. God is blessing us because of our obedience to Him. It's not because we brought anything to the table. These servants didn't have anything to bring to the table. The bride and the bridegroom didn't have anything to bring to the table. But we just trusted Him enough to do what He said. And so if you're feeling the nudge, man, I just want to encourage you, take the risk. It's always a risk, always a risk. And we'll see that in just a second. So verse 7, Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, Now, dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. Mind you, they are filled with water. Take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. O-M-G. Let me tell you what has just happened. First of all, these big six 30-gallon water jars, he's asking them to fill with water to the brim. Now, one of the lessons that I have taken from this is oftentimes when God is prepping me for something, I normally, it, it, it requires discipline for me to fill it to the brim. And I liken it for me like exercise. I, I exercise very regularly, and I have for about six or seven years. But there are days when I'm phoning it in. There are days when I'm in this class and I'm like, and I'm not really lifting what I should or I'm not really running like I should because I just don't care. I just don't want to. There are times when I, um, you know, when I'm just not going to make the bed. I don't really care if that toilet's got a ring around it. I just don't feel like cleaning it. And God is saying, fill it to the brim, meaning work diligently. Do it all the way. Go all the way to the end. So if God is saying to you, finish the Bible study, Finish the Bible study. If God is saying to you, call the friend, call the friend. Don't just call and uh, rang twice, hung up. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So when God is saying to these people, look, I've already offended people. I'm so sorry. Bye, sweetie. Thanks for coming. I knew I would eventually. I'm just teasing you. So when he's saying to these servants, fill it to the brim, fill it to the brim, can you imagine what they're thinking? Because it takes a while to fill those to the brim. They're probably thinking, this is crazy. 
This is crazy. And they probably want to cut it off halfway and just go, okay, whatever you're going to do, this is going to be so humiliating. But they did exactly what he asked them to do. So maybe that's a stretch that I'm reading into the passage, but it certainly spoke to me. Laura, whatever is in front of you, do it well. Brush Beth's hair all the way through. The judges, yeah, okay, you're fine. Now go on. You know, it's like whatever it is he's asking me to do, do it. Do it. He who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. And so Sylvie and I treated this Bible study as um, intensely with three or four or five as we do with 75. We desire and we pray to be as effective. So we fill it to the brim. We fill it to the brim. And so that's what Jesus is asking them. And so it's a test for these servants if they're actually going to do what he says. Then he says, take a cup. This is what he said. Literally, the master of ceremonies is the big head honcho, and he wants more wine. They're out of wine. Rumor is getting around. Disgrace is about to happen. He said, now dip it in the cleansing water, which is nasty. I just think, I mean, probably it's clean water in there, but it's been dirty. You know, I'm just saying, what is that like? So dip it in there. Now take it on up there to him. Good luck with that. What on earth? What on earth? But this is the beauty of God, is that he always requires engagement from our part. We have to be engaged with him. So much of the time, I want to sit there and go, okay, when I see that turn into wine, then I'll dip my cup and then I'll take it up there. But I am not going to risk my own reputation. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Jesus is saying, if you want to see the miracle... If you want the thrill of engagement with me, if you want to know in your gut, not in your head, that I do miracles, you got to dip the cup in the water. And as you dip it, you start walking. And as you walk, I'm going to turn it into wine. He didn't even tell them that, did he? He did not tell them that. He said, dip it, walk. Dip it and walk. And so they did. They dipped it and walked. By the time they got there to the master of ceremonies, it had turned into wine. That is what Jesus will do with you and me. You keep walking forward, and then the miracle, the healing, the provision, the direction, whatever it is you need will happen. But when you sit back and you wait for Him to change before you respect Him, when you sit back and you wait for the bank account to have a certain number in it before you start giving, when you sit back and you wait, for something to happen before you start to talk about your faith with someone else, you will miss it altogether. You'll miss it because that's not faith. That's not faith. That's not faith. And so, and it's not a thrill. It's not a thrill. I mean, it would have been amazing to see just see that turn into wine. But you watch throughout Scripture, the Lord always requires us to be fully engaged with Him. And I don't want to be fully engaged with Him half the time. I want comfort. I want security, and I want to know that I'm going to be intact. Please just assure me that you're not going to embarrass me when I walk up there. He didn't. Did he say that? He didn't say anything to him. He just told him what to do. They had to trust him. And they're not, they've not even had an engagement with him yet. They're trusting him based on what Mary's told them. That's what I love. That's what I love. That will be what your faith will be like in the beginning. In the beginning, you will see men and women ahead of you that you you look at their faith and you go, okay, because she said that I'm going to believe it. But as you grow 
And as you have your own experiences with the Lord, you then turn around and go, no, let me tell you. Let me tell you who He is. Let me tell you how trustworthy He is. Let me tell you, you put everything in. All those eggs of yours, put them all in His basket. That's the safest place. He becomes your God. He doesn't become your parents' God anymore. He doesn't stay um, just the God you hear about on Sundays. He's intimate. He's connected. Y'all, you will be so bored with Christianity if you don't live this way. You will be so bored. You will have that type of faith that goes in and out and up and down and all around. You'll be hot one season and it'll be cold. If you stay engaged with Jesus, ups and downs will come in life but you know He's trustworthy. You will stick with Him. You won't always be excited about it, but you'll stick with Him because you know He's worth it. You know He's worth it. He's worthy of your trust. So these sweet servants take the cup and they walk up there and then look what happens. In verse 9, it says, When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from. Now look at how precious the fact that this is in Scripture in parentheses. It says, Though the servants knew... Though the servants knew. I love that, is that those servants had an intimate encounter with Jesus that no one at the place had. Mary did, because she's smart. She knew who he was already. Nobody else knew. Another part of how gracious the Lord is, is that he let them in on it, but then also he saves the bride and groom's reputation. All right. So it says, of course they knew. He called the bridegroom over, and he said, A host always serves the best wine first, he said. And then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive, a.k.a. box wine. (laughs) The Franzia, that's $10 for five gallons, that comes out last. But you have kept the best until now. What is important to understand about Jesus is that when you need His grace... When you need Him to do something in your life, oftentimes if you're like me, I'm asking Him for just enough. I'm asking Him for just enough. Think about the prodigal son that left home and he squandered everything and he came back home and he said to his dad, all I'm asking for is that you hire me on as a hired hand. His expectations were like, I don't really deserve much more than that. And I'll be really happy with just that. I think we approach the Lord the same way. If you'll just cover the bases for me, and the Lord's going, you have no idea who who I am. You have no idea who I am. The Lord did not provide enough. He provided in abundance. In abundance. 2,500 glasses of wine in Cut and Shoot, Texas. (laughs) There's not 2,500 ants in Cut and Shoot, Texas. 2,500, so abundance. And then as the master of ceremony says, you have provided the finest wine for last. So Jesus always gives more than enough, and he, the quality, it's over and above what we could ever hope or imagine or think. Ephesians 3.20 says that. He provides more than we could ever hope, think, or imagine. And I love also is that when the Lord met their needs, it's unconditional. You never see in Scripture the Lord go up to this couple and go, that was for me, now you owe me. We'll talk later. (laughs) But don't we do that? Don't we do that with the Lord? We think, oh my gosh, thank you for that blessing, Lord, but oh gosh, I better be really good. And I hope that doesn't mean that right around the corner something tragic is about to happen. And we're always playing this game with the Lord in our mind. You just got to know He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is good. He is trustworthy. He is worthy of your trust. 
It says at the end, and we'll close, it says, um, this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. What a beautiful day that must have been. I bet those disciples went home and said, we have no idea who we left our boats for. This is going to be great. And in 12, it says, after the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, brothers, and his disciples. That's it. That's what it looks like. The Lord just comes in, and this sweet bridegroom, I wonder if they even met him. I mean, he was invited to their wedding. They must have known him a little bit. But it's like Jesus just did this for them, and they couldn't give him anything. That's how much he loves us. And so today as we close, I just want to remind you, he's not just the calm in your storm, like we talked about last week. He's above that. He's not here just to smooth out your life. He's here to create a life for you that is far above what you could have ever hoped or imagined. And it's not connected to material wealth, financial gain. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about deep satisfaction. He's talking about an intimate connection with Him where you see Him work in your life and in the lives of those you love in ways you could have never even imagined. And it's one of those things where you walk out and you're just tickled and you know, if I tried to even explain that, I'm going to sound crazy. But Lord, you and I know what you just did for me. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that we would be like this, the sweet servants in this story, Lord. Just trustworthy women that will do what you ask us to do. And as a result, we would see you do things in and through us that would blow our minds. Lord, you are a good, gracious, loving Father. And I pray that we would draw near to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, ladies. Oh, yeah. So next week is our last week, and Dwight Edwards will be here, and I've asked him if he would teach.